And I, I talk about this in the book, how I went back again. And then at one point, I think it became really obvious to her that I really was out of questions. <laughs> and she's just like, you know, you can just come visit me. And I was like so excited. And then that, just those short visits turned into regular luncheons and outings. And oh my gosh, I mean, an, un, an incredible friendship. It went from weekly to daily to some point, and And this is in the book. She actually moved in with me. And so I had the opportunity to have a front row seat to wisdom and I soaked it up. I'm Casey Main, a jaded, hopelessly romantic, health-conscious party girl searching for meaning. And my mission is simple, to make life better for myself and for you. I believe real change always comes from within. And the Better You podcast was born to discover hidden parts of ourselves and our stories. A safe place where we have real, honest conversations with people from all walks of life to help better understand ourselves so we can become better versions of ourselves. So come along on this journey of discovery with me so you can become a better you. Welcome back to another episode of the Better You Podcast. This is a bonus episode as this is our second episode this week. If you have not yet listened to Tuesday's episode about friendship with Lydia Denworth, I highly recommend that you do. It's a super interesting conversation and really like a scientific view of friendship and how it's formed, why it matters how it benefits us, just like really, really cool stuff. And then I wanted to air this conversation on the same week because this is just a great example of a very unique friendship. So a little bit of of background story here. So this must have been back in 2017, I want to say. 2017 is the year that I wrote my book And in December of that year, as I was trying to navigate, okay, now what do I do? I think I had like a complete manuscript I had gone through a couple of times. I'm like, all right, what do I do? I know nothing about the writing and publishing world. So did some research, started to learn, okay, you know, if you want to go with a traditional publisher, you have to have a literary agent. You've got to pitch your book idea to literary agents in order to get them to pick it up. It's this whole process. And somewhere in my research, I stumbled across this pitch conference that was being held in New York City. And you had to like submit your writing in order to attend. And so I did, and they accepted me. I don't know how much competition really there was. Maybe they accepted everybody. I don't know, but I was super stoked at the time that they, they accepted me and allowed me to spend my money to come to New York city for this pitch conference. But it was such a, just such a cool weekend for me. Like for the first time in my life, I was in a room with just all writers Some had already published work. People were in various stages of their career. And then there were people like me that had never published a book. And it was kind of this wild dream. And we were all in this room together for a weekend. And and we worked with the facilitator to kind of figure out our pitch and the best way to be able to pitch our book idea to literary agents. And then we were actually able to pitch to representatives from actual publishing houses. So if you are 
interested in writing a book or somewhere in that process, and you want to know a little bit more about that, then just shoot me an email or reach out to me on the socials. I'll be happy to let you know what that conference was and and give you all that information. But it was such a great experience for me, mostly because I, it made me feel like, oh, wow, okay, I'm really going to do this. Like I'm really going to be a writer, which was just very exciting. And one of the other writers that I met there was Judy Gammon, who is today's guest. And she was there for the same reason, working on the pitch for her book, Love Life and Lucille. And it was so fun to watch her just like face light up as she talked about Lucille. And she was so articulate and so polished throughout the whole weekend. Whereas like, I was like a nervous wreck, but she just like had her stuff together. And, you know, we chatted and kind of formed a little friendship as like a lot of the people in our group did, because we just went through this really unique experience together. And then, you know, that was a weekend. And then I went back home and, and we all kind of continued on our own paths. We had like a Facebook group, but it kind of fell by and we all kind of pretty much lost touch. And then a couple, maybe a month or so ago, maybe more, I don't know, I get this email from a publicist pitching for this author to come on the podcast. And I'm reading through it. And sure enough, it's Judy. And it's her book about Love, Life, and Lucille. And I was just like, oh my God, I know her. So I responded to the publicist. I'm like, I don't know if you know this, but I know Judy. Like we we were at a pitch conference together. Like I'd absolutely love to have her on the show and catch up. So this is just a really, it's, it's a fun conversation. It's a lighthearted conversation, but it's packed with a really valuable message, especially after Tuesday's conversation that gave just a lot of really kind of hard scientific facts of like why friendship is so good for us. And then Judy has this incredible story of her friendship with Lucille, who is a centenarian and, and just how they really changed each other's life really towards towards the tail end of Lucille's life, but at a really important time in Judy's life as well. I do want to point out that this conversation was recorded back in early May. So the big thing going on in the news and what was on everybody's minds was, was the pandemic. Um, This is before the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. So if we mention anything about kind of what's going on, it's because the pandemic was what was on everybody's mind. And it, it was before, you know, the, the current events that we're experiencing now. All right. So a little bit more about Judy. She is an award-winning author, public speaker, and CEO of Executive Medicine of Texas. She spent nearly a decade offering advice on longevity and vitality as a voice of the Staying Young radio show, which was nationally syndicated on 58 stations. She has appeared on Fox News Radio, Good Morning Texas, and San Diego Living, among numerous other outlets. Judy also tours as a public speaker and has been entertaining audience of all sizes for years. She crafts her presentations around engaging and easy-to-understand concepts, including longevity, vitality, and healthy living. Her presentations touch on topics like curing workaholism and burnout while still being a strong leader. Judy's award-winning books include Stay Young, 10 Proven Steps to Ultimate Health, Age to Perfection, How to Thrive to 100, Happy, Healthy, and Wise, and her latest, Love, Life, and Lucille, Lessons Learned from a Centenarian. And in this episode, we discuss the different cultural views towards the elderly, Lucille's unique life and how their friendship formed, Judy's history of being a workaholic and how Lucille helped change her views towards work and life. 
the underlying issues that were driving her workaholic nature, what Lucille taught her about true friendship, how comparisonitis holds us back from being vulnerable with our friends, what children and the elderly have in common but the rest of us lose sight of, the health and longevity benefits of finding a balance between routine and variety, the importance of connection with family, and the biggest lesson Lucille taught her about the meaning of life. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. I hope you check out Judy's book. It's really, it's a great story. And I think we could all use a positive conversation and story at this point in our lives. So enjoy. So let's jump into the good stuff. Um, I want to just start with um, a little bit of kind of your your background and your experience and like kind of what it is that you do, like your life in general. And then we'll kind of jump into um, Lucille and, and y'all's very unique friendship. Okay. Well, Casey, thanks so much for having me on your show. I, I love what you're about. I love the things you do. And it's a pleasure to be on with you. And I want to first thank you for that. Absolutely. One of one of the things that that I do in my what I call my day job is I'm the CEO at a luxury medical practice called Executive Medicine of Texas, and we really have a focus on longevity and age management, which ironically leads me to write a lot of material articles and books and such. I was writing a book called Age to Perfection: How to Thrive to 100 Happy, Healthy, and Wise. When in the middle of doing all of this research about the blue zones, that's where people live the longest and all mm-hmm. these things, I just had this moment of, why don't I just ask people over a hundred? And, and <laughs> yeah. I mean, really, they've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. Uh, it, it's funny that things sometimes like stare you in the face and you're like, oh yeah, duh. Why don't I just go that route? And that's really how I met Lucille, which um, is what brought us to the book, Love, Life, and Lucille. Yes, I I love it. Um, I think it's just, it's funny. I was having this conversation just the other day, um, or actually we've had this conversation a lot, my boyfriend and I, about, um, about, I don't know, I don't know, now I don't know, like the PC word, elderly, older people, who knows what it is, but just in how- PC, you can call them whatever you want. Okay. (laughs) Um, now I'm sure there'll be like a lot of rules. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But just how like times of kind of change, or at least maybe in, in the Western culture, you know, we, we put the, we put old people in, in homes and, and we just kind of disregard them or we're like annoyed with them, but in, in different times and in different parts of the world, like they're revered as just you know, having so much wisdom and knowledge and kind of, it's, it's like an honor to talk to them. So I just, I think it's, I don't know, it's just interesting and upsetting the way we don't necessarily value the elderly old people, centenarians, like, as I think that we should. And so the fact that you got this opportunity to, um, well, first of all, meet and talk to, to many, but also like form this bond and this relationship with Lucille. I think it's just like really special. 
Well, Casey, you really got it right. I mean, in these blue zones, like in Japan, there's some some different parts of the world and different specific areas where people live the longest. And we do see completely different culture shift there. In those areas, people are revered as the matriarch or or they're they're brought in and the family goes to them for wisdom. They still are making decisions for their family, even up to a hundred and beyond. And here in the United States and North America in general, we kind of have this idea of what old people are. And I'm very open in, in the book. When I first met Lucille, I went to talk to her in person. I had, she was the first of the centenarians I interviewed. I had in my head an idea of what she was going to be. And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> yeah, <this was laughs> nothing that I had dreamed up. We don't expect people to have teeth. We you know, quite frankly, maybe expect them to have a little bit of a smell and not Chanel number five, which is what she smelled like. And and just that experience of, wow, this is not just a human life, but someone who's full of life. It's not what we expect, but there's so much wisdom that we don't even tap into. Exactly. Because think about, especially in this day and age, because change and progress is happening so quickly. I mean, I think of the technology side of things with phones, and then even you get into social media and all of that, how much that has changed in my lifetime. Like when I was a child, we didn't have cell phones and iPhones. There was no social media. Like I remember when AOL arrived in the mail as a disc that you put in. And it was just this whole foreign concept of email and chat rooms and then messaging. And now I probably sound super old to, to the younger generation that's listening, but I'm not that old. And so like that much change has happened in my lifetime. So you think about somebody who is 180, 90, a hundred years old, like what they've seen, like that, it's just incredible. It really is. You know, Lucille was born in 1912, so that's the year the Titanic sank. Oh, my God. <laughs> that gives you a little bit of perspective. Yep. But she did have a really unique way of putting things in perspective, just in general, because she had seen people live through so much. She mm-hmm. came to the United States from Canada actually during the Depression. So her idea of hard work and our idea of hard work is so different. She came with a suitcase, a suitcase and a locket, which I talk about in the story. And she put herself through nursing school and with the best attitude, she knew I've got to start at the bottom. I've got to earn a paycheck. Then I'm going to take that paycheck. I'm going to put it towards school. I'm going to get a degree. And I mean, she just everything that right now we would say a modern woman could do really in the thirties, that was unheard of. Mm -hmm. And she was a pioneer in, in such a sense. And, and even as an elderly person, she was a pioneer. One thing that I found after I wrote the book, Age of Perfection, my then publicist said, Hey, um, good morning. Texas had an idea. They were wondering if Lucille would go on television with you. I was like, uh, yeah, I'm sure she will. And I asked her (laughs) and I mean, I just knew she would, right. I asked her and she just screamed. She was so excited. And you know, I want to talk about what she's going to wear. And it was, it was 
just like anybody you would expect reaction if they were like 20 or 30 or whatever, she still had that spark. And I mean, she just rocked it. And pretty soon we were doing interviews, radio interviews, and we were doing television interviews. And, and she just had a new calling. She became a longevity expert and people just ate that up. She was a star in her own right before she was a star. But yeah, it it's amazing that at some point she was in the in her independent living center, and the highlight of the day was Duplicate Bridge. Yep, yep. So, all right, so let's go to I I, I want to talk a little bit more about um your first meeting with her, and then kind of how your friendship started to develop. So, kind of like take us to the beginning, that moment you're going to meet her, you've got these preconceived notions of what she would be like. And then like, what was she actually like? Yeah. When I went to meet her, I, she opened the door and she's like, you know, Hey, I'm Lucille Fleming. I'm like, and just as with just the amount of enthusiasm she had, I'd be like, and I'm Judy Gammon. And <laughs> I thought well, I was going to be there like 15 minutes. I was there so long. I just wanted to think of things to ask because they didn't want to leave. And I, I talk about this in the book, how I went back again. And then at one point, I think it became really obvious to her that I really was out of questions. <laughs> and she, she was just like, you know, you can just come visit me. And I was like, so excited. And then that, that just those short visits turned into regular luncheons and outings and, and Oh my gosh. I mean, an, un, an incredible friendship. It went from weekly to daily to some point, and And this is in the book. She actually moved in with me. And, oh, wow. And so I had the opportunity to have a front row seat to wisdom and I soaked it up. And I openly talk about the struggles I had with workaholism. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. The, the recent pandemic left us all sitting there going, what do we do now? Because we're mm -hmm. so used to being on 24 seven, we forgot how to relax. And I was definitely in the midst of a third generation of workaholism when Lucille and I met and she helped me put things into perspective in ways that I can't even imagine like could happen. So, so like, what did that workaholism look like for you in your life? Well, at the time I wasn't CEO, I had a different title. I was director of business development and I was out the door really when it was dark and I came home when it was dark and I struggled so much with just wanting to accomplish the next thing. And mm -hmm. I couldn't sit still because I always had a to-do list. I couldn't sleep because I always was thinking about the to-do list. And I got great joy and I still do <laughs> in checking the box, you know, yeah. um, but I'm able to realize that checking the box doesn't define me. Neither does my title, neither does accomplishments or accolades or things. Those don't define me. Whereas I really did think that's what defined me. Pardon me, Lucille. So how did she kind of flip that script on you? Like how? How did she show you that you were, were bigger than the things that you do in the boxes you check? 
Well, one of the things that I had always struggled with was, and being a third generation workaholic, was that anytime I did accomplish something, I would get praise from my parents and it would give me a reason to talk to them. But they also were my whole childhood, very busy. My, my parents were divorced. So I wasn't with my dad as much, but my mom especially was very, very into her job. And really what happened is my life was on fast forward. And when I started meeting with Lucille, her life sped up and my life slowed down. Mm -hmm. And I actually learned what it feels like to stop and actually have real deep conversations and get to know people around us. There's so many fascinating people that we met along the way. And each chapter kind of talks about this journey we went on, people we met, things that that we learned together, ways that we help each other. Uh, It's incredible that I kind of went through life with blinders on up until that point and didn't have a sense of calmness that I didn't even know could exist. But she definitely taught me that it not only can exist, um, but it's a better way of life. For sure. And I think that's something, that busyness, whether it is just in work, so kind of the, you know, workaholic or just general busyness, like we just all, life these days is, there's an endless amount of things to to take your time and to kind of plug the holes in your life. And so I agree with you that, you know, we very rarely are just sitting and just kind of slowing down. And when we try to, like, it's, it's very uncomfortable. And like, I believe that's because we have things within our life, within ourselves, within our past that we haven't yet faced. And so we're kind of numbing or escaping or just keeping ourselves distracted with all the busyness. Was that true for you in your, your workaholicness? Like, were you, were there parts of you or your life that you were kind of avoiding on some level? Oh yeah. I, a lot of just some pent up stuff I had about my parents, about the divorce, about not um, being as close to them as I really wanted to be. And in the, in the book, I talk about coming down with Lyme disease, which stopped me dead in my tracks and how, even though that was the hardest thing I had physically ever gone through, I had neuro Lyme. So I went, I got to a point where I couldn't drive. I couldn't walk. It was really unbelievable, but that stopping me dead in my tracks and Lucille being in my life at the same time, I don't think that's an accident. I think that was by divine design and no one can convince me otherwise because it forced me to deal with my issues with my parents. And at, and at one point, um, each of my parents had to come and take care of me. And mm-hmm. I... I really get a little bit uh, in depth on what that felt like and and how they, I had to resolve some of that stuff, but I don't think I could have resolved that and come to peace with my relationship with my parents and love them unconditionally and all those things that I was always thought was just a bunch of fluff and didn't ever exist. Um, I don't think I could have done that if it hadn't been for the strength that I got through my friendship with Lucille. Did she have like, did, um, I'm sure you talk, or I know you talked to her about this kind of stuff. Did she 
um, was she the type of person that just kind of listened and asked questions or did she have some kind of advice or perspective or wisdom that she shared that really kind of helped you tackle those unhealed wounds with your parents? Because I think that's something a lot of people struggle with and maybe never have the strength or even never have the opportunity to kind of um, seek closure or fix that kind of stuff with, with their parents. Yeah, she had not just um, words of wisdom, but it wasn't just me spouting off these are my issues. I mean, Lucille and I's relationship, and it's it's so well described within the chapters, is both of us kind of figuring out our life. Because I can tell you, even at 100, you don't have it figured out. There's still <laughs> Man! <laughs> I know, it's a real downer, right? <laughs> but we still have things we have to work through, and we still need friends, and we still need to grow. Um, Lucille was still growing. She had her own fears, and and she overcame some of those and, and we both really helped each other so much through that. People say, was she a mother to you? No. I, I mean, yeah, she filled some kind of void because she wanted to spend time with me. And that was something I desperately needed, but she truly was a best friend. And I really believe that that true friendship knows no age. And, mm-hmm. and the things that we talked about, I think even far exceed what you would talk to your mom about. There's things we talked about that didn't make the book. You know, we agree. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) I got, I got the, you know, the worst end of that deal though. You know, I got, I got to hold it way longer. (laughs) Um, So no, I love that because it brings up, you know, a really good point just about friendship in general. What did, like, what did your friendships look like prior to meeting Lucille, I know you worked a lot, so that doesn't always leave time for friendships, but did you have people in your life that you had like real conversations with? I wouldn't say I had as deep a conversations pre Lucille. And I don't think I had time as much for my friends as I should have pre Lucille. And right now, I think all of us struggle with the definition of friend. Because we have social media and we have quote friends and what is a friend, somebody that likes your stuff or comments on mm-hmm. your stuff, but what is a real friend? You know, what, what is it when, you know, on social media, we like to post everything that's going right. Who do you call when mm-hmm. everything's wrong? You know, who, who do you, who do you listen to when everything goes wrong in their life? Who would you trust to make life and death decisions for you? I mean, those are, if, if it's not a family member, who's that friend? So there's all these different levels of friends. And I think we've gotten away from that true meaning of best friend. I I agree. And I think part of it is definitely, I'm sure social media plays a role in that we we kind of know what's going on in each other's lives because we see it in, you know, our news feeds and and whatnot. And to me, I think that's almost an opportunity to when you do then get in front of those friends to skip all the, you know, surface level updates and get to the deep stuff. Yet we don't we typically don't do that. Um I kind of, I pretty much force all friendships in my life now to do that because I've now I'm at a place in my life where I'm very bad at small talk and I hate it. But, but I think the majority of people, um, 
we don't get to those deep levels of conversation. Like why, like, why do you think that that is? I think we're afraid, you know, we see, it used to be that we would look in a magazine and we'd see someone who's airbrushed and they're ridiculously skinny, uh, unhealthy. And we would have kind of that, Oh, I want to be like them. I want to look like them. And that was kind of what we admired, or it was only at celebrity status. So it was something that even though we really liked, uh, like I'm going to age myself for a minute here, like Bo Derek, right? I would grow like Bo Derek. Oh gosh, I wish I could look like Bo Derek. But you kind of knew, yeah, but she's kind of one in a million. So even though I want to be like her, it's okay, I'm not. What we find in social media is that everybody has a quote, perfect life, or they are showing mm-hmm. their, everyone's on vacation. Everybody got a new car and look at my new thing I bought for my house. And, you know, it, it, the, the idea of what people's lives are is quite different than the reality. And, mm-hmm. and I love, I don't know if you happen to have caught Muhammad Ali's uh, funeral, but George W. Bush, I think, said something so profound. He said, we have got to stop comparing ourselves on our worst day to other people on their best. Mm-hmm. And that just stuck with me. I mean, I heard it and I've just, I've since repeated it so many times and, and have to tell myself that so often that it it is kind of a, a bad habit and it's a bad mm-hmm. habit to be in, you know, as a parent, even if your kids are grown, you know, just learning to love and accept people for, for who they are and where they are on their journey. I absolutely agree with that. And I'm just curious if Lucille, having not grown up in the era of social media, struggled with any of that comparison, like within her life. Oh, well, I think she set the bar. (laughs) And, (laughs) And I think that other people struggled with what she, who she was. And I don't think it, I know it. I mean, she, when she was at Eden, she lived at a couple of places. Uh, but when she was at Eden, she was the queen. They crowned like a yearly king and queen. She was the queen. And she dressed to the nines every day. She always had her hair and makeup on. She wore high heels. And the men would even say, oh, Lucille, you look so nice. And I'd watch the other women and they just didn't have it in them or they just wanted to be like that, but they couldn't. But she had a table that a group of ladies sat at and they would all get dressed up to come to lunch because she had set the bar. And it was interesting that you'd look around at other tables and they didn't look like they were really going anywhere. They hadn't dressed up. Um, Maybe they're wearing outfits that they probably wore for a day or two. And I think maybe some people felt, gosh, she looks as good at a hundred and I'm only 80 (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. and I can't look like that, but she never was judgy. I mean, she would say to me, I wish more people would dress up, you know, but she was, she never treated anybody bad. She never, never, never. That was not her thing. 
Yeah, that I love that. I think that's adorable. But then part of me is also like, oh my gosh. So you're telling me by the time like we reach a hundred, there's still kind of, you know, the popular table and we've got to like look cute and all that stuff. So oh, was girl, she <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, I, oh my gosh, they they actually had to have town hall meetings because there was PDA in the elevators. So <laughs> it doesn't stop. The drama never ends. It never ends. So was she um was she secure in who she was and that's why you know she she did those things or was she still struggling with trying to live up to some expectation or kind of doing the things so many of us do as like, I'm going to post the best pictures, even though this isn't really what my life is like on a daily basis. Like, was it, was it genuine or was part, was any part of it rooted in insecurity? A hundred percent genuine. It wow. was just who she was. Yeah. And she would say, I, I make sure I get dressed up every day because it makes me feel good. It wasn't because someone else was going to say something or I I think too, when we try to live up to the expectations of other people, we do things for the wrong reasons. It's exhausting. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. I think it causes a lot of stress, which then is not good for our health, which then prevents us from ever reaching those ages. (laughs) Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, she, she laid out her clothes the night before. I mean, she would go to bed fully expecting to wake up the next day. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Okay. So let's get into some of the, the secrets for growing old yet staying young. Cause you've written books on this topic. You, you speak on this topic. You spent all this time with somebody who actually did it. So how do we age gracefully as they say? Yeah, it's it's a great topic, and it's a, a lot of people ask us this. And what we found, and especially in writing the Age to Perfection book, was that we lose something. After I had interviewed all these people over a hundred, I thought it'd be fun to interview some some young kids, like five six year olds. And what do they think it takes to to be a hundred? And honestly, outside of the eat jelly beans every day kind of stuff, uh, (laughs) the answers were identical. So when we're young, we know we need to eat well, we need to exercise, we need to have friends, we need to be nice to our family, all of these things we know intuitively at a young age. And people that have made it to 100 know it's just something happens to us after 20 and we forget all of these things that are so important. One thing that was really a standout among all the the people over 100 that I interviewed was that they all had faith. And I thought that was amazing that they all didn't feel the need to control everything in their life. And maybe Mm -hmm. that idea that I don't have to be a control freak is what helps them live a long time. But they also, you know, they ate well, they exercised. One lady that I had interviewed, oh gosh, she was so cute. She went to the gym every day and she'd do the machines. She wouldn't put the weight on them, but she'd do every machine without the weight because she wanted to maintain her flexibility. And I just thought that is so great. Not only did she get out of the house, but she's doing that and she's socializing with the people at the gym. So she was unbeknownst to her, like doing three of the really important things. 
getting out of the house is so important to longevity, which is kind of ironic. Given I know. I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> that we we're not live. allowed out. We're not allowed out. <laughs> gonna, no one's going to live to 100 if we keep this up. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that is, there's just so much truth to that. When we get out and we get out and about, it, it changes our our chemistry of our body. It changes our brain. It changes our, our our physiological makeup when we are out and doing things. And the worst thing that that people can do is become a shut in, especially mm-hmm. as an older person. Yeah, I've um, I followed some of the the blue zone stuff, and I thought it was so interesting that you know there's some similarities within like eating plans and stuff, but then it it does also differ. But one of the constants seemed to be like community. So, do you think that like getting out is really more about the the social aspect and like being around and like conversing with other people because in those instances is that's where we have the ability to like practice empathy and all these things that, you know, studies have shown are very good for us. Oh, absolutely. And what happens with people that are, that don't get out and socialize, and it's not just old people, this could be anybody, you know, it could be stay at home moms. It could be, you know, people during a pandemic that are told not to leave. We get into this routine and because we're doing the same thing over and over, uh, we're, we're, our brain's not being exercised and, mm. and it can actually lead to depression because there's certain things, even just accomplishments, you know, finding your, your way somewhere that you've never been before. Uh, just those kinds of things that help your brain grow and help your brain stay healthy. And when we're stuck in a big routine and this, you know, you could be going to the office and home every day and you could be stuck in, in a routine that does the same thing whenever we're not expanding, then we're actually harming ourselves. So whether you're elderly or whether you're not, it does, that doesn't really matter because you're going to set these habits early on. So you need to be doing things, learning new things. I mean, right now I'll tell you, I'm, I'm doing a, um, a graduate, a graduate certificate from Harvard. Why? Because it's on my bucket list, but it's stretching my brain in ways I didn't know my brain could be stretched. But coming, maybe it's because I'm coming up on 50 and I was like, I need to start knocking some of that stuff off my bucket list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but if you think about it from Lucille's perspective, you're only halfway there. Like you're at the middle. I got a long list. I got a long list, Casey. So, you know, I'm like, okay, I just need to put skydiving last just in case. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, that, that makes sense because, you know, even once you start to get into kind of brain science, and this is where like, I remember back in like my first job in the healthcare industry. And I was like a, in the kind of the marketing department and I helped coordinate all these community lectures where physicians would talk and the hospital I worked for had a memory center. And so our um, head neurologist would do these lectures on different brain and memory related stuff. And I remember he would always talk about, you've got to continuously be learning new things as a means to like prevent dementia, but just the, the neuroscience of it and creating the new synapses and all that stuff. So it's like, 
this makes sense on so many levels, but it's one of those things that doesn't necessarily stay top of mind because ironically, it's like our brains are built against us because our brains love habits and patterns and routines and doing the same thing over and over again. But then that's, it's just harming itself. Yeah. And the flip side of staying home is that it did break the routine for many people who did the same thing, go to the office and come back. It was hard. It was hard for people to adapt to, I have a new normal. There's something new I have to do. But in the end, it's really helping our brains now to an extent, because now everyone's, you know, now they need to get back and, and do do things and learn new things. There's only there's only so long it takes that your routine at home um, just becomes a routine again. And but even even just learning about you know do we wear masks? Do we not wear masks? What's the new normal? Oh my gosh! I have shopped the grocery store the exact same way for the last I don't know almost fifty years. What do you mean I have to go one way down this aisle and one way down the other aisle? <laughs> I can't find the ketchup because I never come from this direction. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That is, it has changed a lot of our norms. And and it's forced us to slow down. So it used to be, you know, I park in the Trader Joe's parking lot, I beeline for the door, I zoom around my normal routine, get my groceries, and I'm out. Now I show up. I've got to wait in line. <laughs> so immediately right there, like it's a pause. And you're a little and, panic because you're looking at the people in front and behind you going, hmm, do they look sick? Hmm. And I'm trying to, once you get in, you're trying to be, yeah, you're trying to be like respectful of other people. So if they're all like gloves and masks and look terrified, I don't go anywhere near them, even if they're standing in front of something I need because I'm just trying to be respectful of boundaries and stuff. So it has, it has switched up our norms, but but I like that concept. So it's like, we need, we need to get out. We need that socialization. Um, not, not just kind of be alone at home. Um, but then we also need variety. Yeah. I mean, and that's really the key. And it goes back to that. And people used to say, Oh, you know, the big buzzword in the nineties and was work-life balance. We all need work-life balance. And, and really what we need is change up our routines, have flexibility. Mm -hmm do things out of, out of the norm. Uh, I, if you go to the same restaurant all the time, okay, order something different and mm -hmm. sit at a different table. When you go to church, don't sit in the same pew or in the same aisle or you know, we, we like comfort. We like routines. We like, this is the way it's always been done, but this is the way it's always been done can do damage. So you got to mm -hmm. learn how to be flexible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay. Are there any other, other secrets to staying young that, that we should know about? Well, I, I think another thing with the, the people in the, that I interviewed for age to perfection, the centenarians and what you Casey yourself said, you researched some of the, the blue zones. Mm -hmm. And, and I think what just sticks out all the way across, it goes back to what you said earlier in the interview and that is those connections with family, people that have really good connections with their family. It doesn't mean you have to love everybody. You got to love everybody. You don't have to like everybody. You don't have to prove everything they do. They don't need to prove everything you do. Just that, that love and acceptance. And that is really key. I noticed that all the people I interviewed and when you do the research on the blue zones, the people who've let go of the animosity and have said, 
you know, we're just all in this together. And even before that was a catchphrase. And they're just learning to love one another. That goes a really long way. And ironically, what is that? That's the golden rule, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and we just get back to the golden rule and, and things just seem a lot better. Yeah, I, I love that. And that was a, that was a big, um, or just a really interesting fact that I learned. Um, I had Dr. Austin Perlmutter on the show and him and his dad wrote a book called Brainwash, which is really all about like the neuroscience that goes behind us making better decisions. Because a lot of times, you know, even, even as you said, like we know what to do, we know what's good for us as children and then we lose it. And so like, how do we lose it? along the way. And so they kind of go through all these different components of that and what to do about it. But he said, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest things that really helps us even make better decisions for ourselves is empathy, which if you're going to have strong connections, especially with family that you're not always going to approve of their decisions and and vice versa. But if you have that ability to kind of put yourself in somebody else's shoes and try and understand from their perspective, that activates the prefrontal cortex, which helps us make better decisions as opposed to living, I guess, from the amygdala. And I'm trying to exercise my brain knowledge, but it's just- I'm very impressed, Casey. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. He's he's great. So, I mean, that's- Yes. See, I'm learning new things, variety, new synapses. Um, But I just think, you know, sometimes we talk about this stuff and some people could listen to be like, oh, it's all just so, you know, fluffy and whatever. But like, no, there is actual science that that backs up what we need to do to live healthy and happy lives. And and part of that comes because of the invention of the functional MRI. So a lot of people know what MRI is. You get an image of the the brain, but when they came out with fMRI, which stands for functional MRI, we're actually able to look at the brain in real time. So we Mm -hmm. know what happens to the brain and how it changes and what lights up based on different things that happen to us. So we now know that being kind to other people, um, letting go of, of hardship and, and things like that, that it actually does have a reaction in the brain. And yes. so, so yeah, the science is there, not that we needed it, right? I mean, these are things that, that, that are just truths, whether you have- Yeah, we just, we know, but you're right. We, we get- we get disconnected from it along the way. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's nice to know that we come back to it at the end. And I think that almost kind of makes sense that, you know, towards, towards the end of life, you just have a whole different perspective on things. Yeah. It's the great circle of life. And I I think really that's um, in the book, Love, Life and Lucille, that's the big lesson. Of course, she told me that the very number one thing to living a long and healthy life. It's on the last page of the book, so I'm not going to spoil it. But that is, that's really what the book's about, that no matter what generation we grew up in, no matter what our age is, the human experience has similarities regardless of your socioeconomic class, whatever. We all have our first kiss. We, we've all experienced loss and, and great things that happen to us. And I mean, there's, there's certain things that happen in the human experience that make us who we are eventually, but that give us that, that sense that we're living. And 
really Lucille just helped me realize that, that it's about the human experience. It's not about the destination. It's about the, the journey. Oh, I love it. That is absolutely the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on. Tell everybody where they can find the book, buy the book, all your books, um, your work, follow you, all that good stuff. Yeah. So go to Love Life Lucille, leave the and off, just lovelifelucille.com. There's lots of great things there, including pictures of Lucille and I together. There's a really cool app where you can hold up the cover of the book and it goes 3D on your phone and and some neat neat things you can do there as well as order the book, Love Life and Lucille. And then to check out Executive Medicine of Texas and what we do there, just go to EM Texas, spelled out, emtexas.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. All right. That'll do it for this bonus episode and that'll do it for this week. I hope you all enjoyed the episodes. Thank you very much for listening. As always, I ask that if you are enjoying the podcast to please share it with friends, share it on your socials, or leave a rating or write a review on whatever platform you're listening. That all helps me grow the show so that I can continue to do this. You can also follow the podcast on the socials. We are on the Better You Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have any feedback for me, you can always reach me at thebetteryoupodcast at gmail.com. And that is it. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye.